Welcome to the show. Thanks for watching. This is Daniel Workman coming to you from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. Today you are watching a throwback edition of the show. This is a rewind to a past episode and interview. Thanks for watching. And now, without further ado, here is today's show. It's Independence Day, and uh, coming up in a few minutes, we are going to have uh, our guest, Brian Costin, joining us today to talk about transparency, governance. I, I don't think we could we could talk about better subjects than, uh, than those on this day for American soccer. Look forward to chatting with him here in just a few minutes, but... Uh, Yesterday's uh, second semifinal in the Women's World Cup took place between the Netherlands and Denmark, and um, it was a back-and-forth affair, both teams close throughout regulation. I mean, back-and-forth, near makes, uh, close misses, no one scored, goes to extra time, and in the first half of extra time, the Netherlands... uh, we're, we're able to have a nice sequence of, of, of combination play right up the middle uh, with a late run by one of their midfielders making a, an excellent shot, far post, just beating the keeper. And the Netherlands hold on to win 1-0 uh, for the victory to get the Netherlands into their first ever World Cup final on the women's side, um, this is a this is a team that has has not only been undefeated at this World Cup, but this run of undefeated matches in tournament play, going back into the women's Euros in 2017, um, it, it is is amazing. I mean, they have continued to win and move on, win and move on. Um, when when I was looking at these teams early in the tournament, they were they were one of my dark horses to get here. Uh, I liked the way they were playing yesterday. Uh, both teams um, were not at their their brightest and best in terms of execution, but they both had chances. They both had moments. Um, the the Netherlands to beat the U.S. on Sunday, and we'll get more into this. Uh, tomorrow, but the, in order for the the U.S. to beat the Netherlands, I mean, excuse me, the Netherlands to beat the U.S. on Sunday, they are going to have to play a flawless match. They can do it, but they're going to have to be flawless. Um, it's going to be uh, a tough, uh, tough task for them uh, with the amount of talent. On this U.S. women's national team side, it uh, they are they are just so deep. So strong, um, and and um, so we'll see how that goes, and we'll talk about a little bit more about that tomorrow. But it was a it was a, a intense affair yesterday, back and forth. Netherlands able to uh, to secure that victory late in in uh, the first half of extra time, one nil, moving on to their first ever final, and. Um, you know, in, in terms of uh, stadium ambiance, it'll be nice. You'll see you're going to see a, a big wave of orange in the stands, along with a lot of red, white, and blue. And uh, I think Sunday's uh, match is going to be um, a, a really good match. I do think at this point, looking at things, uh, the U.S. heavy favorites to win, and rightly so. The U.S. men's national team uh, took about three, three and a half hours to play their match last night. And no, it's not because it went into extra time and 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 penalties and, you know, 40 rounds of penalties. Uh, it was a weather delay. They played 15 minutes or so and had to break for about 90 minutes due to, to bad weather in the Nashville area. Came back and um, were a little sloppy. They started the game against Jamaica in the Gold Cup. Um, you know, pretty fast, and and we're getting some chances. Uh, converted one, they were up one nil before that break. Ninety minutes waiting on the weather. They come out, 
and uh, finally get restarted. And we're a little sloppy, but we're able to um, to get a second goal. And um, and and after they got the second goal, Jamaica really kind of took over the game for a little bit of a stretch. We're able to get a goal, had a few other chances, unable to convert, and then Christian Pulisic scored his third of the night. He had the game winner and the in the third, the second and the third mat uh, of the match, and uh, that kind of sealed it at that point. U.S. men's win uh, winning last night, three one in Nashville against Jamaica, knocking them out, setting up a USA Mexico uh, Gold Cup final, which is the way that Concacaf and uh, U.S. Soccer and the Mexican Federation try to draw up these tournaments every time. So here we are again, USA, Mexico in the final, um, you know, watching the U.S. men's national team last night and, and listening to some of the comments from Stu Holden about as this tournament's gone on and watching Mexico play, you know, he feels like uh, the U.S. is growing into this tournament and Mexico is have not, you know, been doing well as, as of late and... You know, it felt feels like these two teams are, are going to be pretty evenly matched. I, I don't see it. I, I think Mexico are heavy favorites on Sunday, and and um, I think the U.S. is facing a, a, a massive uphill climb against uh, Mexico. And, uh, you know, it, it's just two levels to me, the way these two teams are, are playing and the way that they're set up. So, um, you know, that that's Sunday following later in the day, following what takes place that morning, which is the World Cup final U.S. women's national team and the Netherlands women's national team. So we have U.S. Holland in the morning and uh, USA Mexico at night Sunday. Um, you you'll have no shortage of soccer to uh, to tune into and uh, and set your schedules around um, as uh, both finals take place on the same day to book in the morning and the evening and uh, and it will be uh, a it'll be a full day. Um, I think if I if you know looking at everything today I mean tomorrow I'll make final predictions but I, I think just at first glance I think we we look good in the morning and I don't think we look so hot in the evening but uh we'll, we'll get into those matchups uh, more tomorrow on tomorrow's show uh, other news uh, that that has come out um, Romania are now with a the, their football association are now looking to mandate that their top level clubs, all field women's teams uh, going forward. That is a trend that is happening uh, around the globe as more and more countries are starting to take the women's game serious, start to invest, start to put in resources. There is an owner there that uh, doesn't want to see this happen. But I, I think the way that the movement is is, is uh, taking place around the globe um, I, I don't see him uh, being able to to keep that from happening uh, going forward because um, women's soccer is growing and the support is growing and you're seeing countries like the Netherlands on the rise, Spain, Italy on the rise. You see the, the English women's national team who, you know, um, just didn't execute in a few moments, um, didn't you know, handle things, uh, you know, in, in a few specific areas, um, the way that they had been handling them in the tournament just made a few mistakes and it cost them, but they are a team that's on the rise. And, um, and, and so countries like the U S who have traditionally been powerhouses in the women's game are going to have to get better at what we do in order to stay at the top. And um, and part of that is, is we've got to get more resources into our women's uh, game on the domestic side. The NWSL, it, 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 there's no excuse or reason for the NWSL to only have nine teams in America. That's ridiculous. Um, we should we should have a league that's got, you know, at least, um, you know, 15 16 18 20 teams in our first division we have plenty of resources we know we have enough players 
and um, and it's time that the Federation um, unleashes the women's game in America. And by unleashing it, I mean putting resources in, allowing ownership groups to come in and um, and and build a system that is merit based. Allow any city in the country to embrace the women's game and, and allow the markets to decide if Dallas loves women's soccer or San Antonio or New Orleans uh, or Pittsburgh and, and they want to pour their resources in and they're good and they do a good job. We should let them um, proceed on their own merit. Every club on the men's and women's side should have that opportunity. But in order for us to grow the women's game, we've got to open it up to the country. We've got to allow people to get creative and innovative. We need to think of the American soccer economy as this grand soccer experiment where where it's a lab of innovation and creativity where where ownership groups and clubs can can come up with ways to become sustainable viable beyond this archaic and arbitrary set of rules the professional league standards that are in place now allow a, a club like Chattanooga to go to the public and offer ownership shares in the club to raise equity and capital uh, allow clubs to to basically take what has been the burden of one person and split that and share that uh, between five six eight ten twelve fifty people uh, allow a Bundesliga style ownership to take place uh, with with a club where m- most of the club is owned by supporters and not by one individual. We need to open up American soccer to to a la- to being a lab of innovation. When we do that, we c- we could see women's soccer just blow up all over this country in places that maybe we didn't even think would embrace professionalism and the women's game. But we're never going to know when we just allow arbitrary rules to dictate arbitrary decisions. And thus we're left with only nine teams in the NWSL. So I hope that changes. um, And I think we need to support the women's game here in this country. We need to do more. Our ladies are showing that they are top class, global standard as players. We have talent. We need to create an environment that is even better and um, and, and is um, better compensated. And that's going to come through, through more competition. More competition breeds excellence. And um, we need more excellence to continue to stay at the top going forward so uh, that's my hope on this fourth of july and um i'm i'm excited that uh, that this sunday is coming up it's going to be a great showcase for our women's team against the netherlands and um heavy favorites we'll break the game down tomorrow but uh, excited to see this matchup on sunday our sponsor this half hour is ductic brand you can learn more about ductic at D-U-K-T-I-G-Brand.com. Use promo code DWSHOW and you will get 10% off your order. Great journals, great notebooks for coaches, players, goalkeepers, etc. Check them out. DuckTickBrand.com. We will be right back with Brian Costin right after this.
Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Thursday morning, July the 4th. It's Independence Day, and uh, we couldn't have uh, picked a better guest to be on this July 4th. We have Brian Costin joining us today. He is a nonprofit and governance expert with 10 years of nonprofit work and four years uh, working in government and anti-corruption. Uh, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on this morning. How are you? Great, Daniel. Happy Independence Day to you as well. And thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for coming on. Um, you, you have such a uh, deep level of experience and knowledge uh, about nonprofit work, governance, um, etc. And um, you know, for, for the for the viewing audience, if you are unaware, our uh, soccer in this country is actually governed by a nonprofit uh, called the United States Soccer Federation, and um, they are mired in multiple lawsuits and legal actions. Um, and in my view, that's precisely due to poor leadership and governance. Um, and and so I wanted to to kind of. Um, bring you on today to have a conversation about some, some things that uh, that you see in in the landscape of soccer and uh, and specifically in American soccer um, and one of the first things I wanted to kind of talk to you about or, or, or pick your brain about is um, transparency why is transparency important when it comes to being a national governing body and how is it uh, helpful when you are a transparent organization well I think you kind of hit right on it but uh, first a little bit about my my background is that uh, I'm from Illinois and if you followed the news you might have heard that Illinois has a little bit of a corruption problem, uh, much like FIFA and other organizations within the, the, the soccer world have had corruption problems. And so from that experience, I've, I've learned a number of lessons about, well, how do you proactively try to deal with that situation and shine a light on activity so that, uh, number one, uh, corruption is deterred from happening in the first place. But number two, also so that you can let your folks know that you are doing the right thing and you re- regain the trust of uh, the, the, the soccer-loving public in America. Now, when it comes to both FIFA and U.S. soccer, I would say there's a long road in front of them to getting much, much better when it comes to transparency, um, when it comes to U.S. soccer, the biggest thing that I would look at where there's a lack of transparency is uh, the Soccer United marketing deal. Um, this was a deal from 2004 all the way through 2022 when the current deal expires. There hasn't been transparency. There hasn't been open competitive bidding. There hasn't been um, a forthright. There's been conflicts of interest that have been going on with the boards. Like you have members from Soccer United Marketing on the board of U.S. Soccer and lots of people that work within the organization that were either employed before with Soccer United Marketing or might be in line for employment for them again in the future. So, We want there to be trust and openness and following of the rules in U.S. soccer and FIFA. And that's why we should have a proactive transparency agenda for reform at that organization. So when when looking at um, some specifics with U.S. soccer, you brought up uh, Soccer United Marketing and you brought up uh, some of the board members. What do you know of the conflicts of interest uh, specifically on the board? And uh, are you aware of of the policies that. Uh, basically are exempting themselves from being considered conflicts of interest. Right. So there is a conflicts of interest policy for specifically um, when they're negotiating the deal between Soccer United Marketing and, and Don Garber, who is a board member and also the, the president of uh, CEO of Soccer United Marketing, uh, he, 
is excused from the room when they they are negotiating that deal. But you know, there are a lot of decisions other than the contract that um, uh, have a great amount of, uh, amount of influence on soccer in America. And so, one of the things that that I would propose is, well, first of all, like we don't know um, how much money. Soccer United Marketing makes from the joint TV deal and how much U.S. soccer makes from the joint TV deal. So, for example, um, the the current contract that they're under right now, $90 million a year from ESPN, Fox Sports, and Univision goes to Soccer United Marketing. How much of that money comes to U.S. soccer because there are a lot of U.S. soccer games that are televised as part of that contract. No one really knows. I have asked U.S. soccer specifically, what is that number? They have refused to disclose it. Uh, Another thing is, uh, along with TV, Soccer United Marketing also uh, handles all of the sponsorships for U.S. soccer. So a couple months ago, you might have heard the announcement that um, uh, Volkswagen is the presenting partner of U.S. soccer. It's understood that Soccer United Marketing helps broker that deal. Um, how much money does U.S. soccer get from that? How much does Soccer United Marketing get from that? No one really knows. And the reason why that's such a big conflict of interest is because U.S. soccer isn't following global standards in regards to having an open system, having a a sporting merit system with promotion and relegation where it'd be one thing with the the Premier League and the Premier League having TV contracts and a lot of money coming in, but any team within the United Kingdom, within England, can rise up to the highest level and achieve those television dollars that come along with it. So it, it makes it especially troubling in the United States to have a secretive contract with a lack of competitive bidding and a lack of openness because of the way that we're structured in the United States. So there needs to be, if there was one change that I can make in U.S. soccer is that I would divorce Soccer United Marketing and U.S. soccer, um, starting with the television deal. Um, have U.S. soccer be entirely on its own when it came to that. And if they wanted to set up their own open system with promotion and relegation, then sharing that revenues with teams from all across America would be fine. But we're far ways away from that. And that's, that's probably the number one issue in U.S. soccer right now. So you speak of and you have a, a deep level of experience concerning transparency and transparent uh, or transparency policies within a, a nonprofit uh, uh, um, organization. What are some specific uh, transparency policies that we should be seeing within U.S. soccer? Well, specifically, um Contracts, the contracts between U.S. Soccer and Soccer United Marketing, that should be completely online for everyone to see down to the cent. Every dime online in real time is is kind of the slogan. That should be a no brainer. Um, that would there. Would, let's just assume for a second that Soccer United Marketing isn't doing anything wrong in its relationship with U.S. Soccer. Let's just hypothetically they would garner a lot of trust and a lot of confidence if they were just more proactively transparent about the way they did business and how much is going across the table both ways. That would be huge. Bidding is another very important um, transparency measure. Having an open and competitive bidding process where different folks from all different types of companies could can come in and and bid on the contract. A couple of years ago, um, there was a four billion dollar offer from MP and Silva that talked about the broadcasting rights for uh, Major League Soccer and U.S. Soccer. The reason why they had to come in and make this like huge splash of wow, we're going to have this four billion dollar deal, which is like four times as much as U.S. Soccer's ever had before. Um, 
was because they, they're not actually allowed to be a part of the bidding process. There is no bidding process. So when the contract comes down to its final year in 2022, there's kind of an exclusive negotiating period uh, where only Soccer United marketing can negotiate with U.S. soccer. So that leaves out everyone else in the United States or even globally that might want to invest in U.S. soccer or propose a new system, which includes promotion and relegation like uh, MP and Silva, what they proposed. So that's another huge issue within um, uh, U.S. soccer that I see. But compensation, we have the, the this huge compensation issue going on in the public sphere right now when it comes to women's soccer versus men's soccer and how much um, the women's team, which in my personal opinion, I think that the, the women's team and the women's players should be getting paid more than the men's team. There's an economic case. And when you talk about a nonprofit and fulfilling the mission of the organization, women's soccer and the women's national team, they are the most important women's sports team in the entire world from performance, from reach, from probably financial as well, but we don't have that detail from U.S. soccer to be able to tell that. They are an unbelievable asset towards the mission of U.S. soccer. Um, so that's another huge, huge uh, portion of transparency. And so that's just a, a sample of some of the, the transparency guidelines that um, I've put together for government organizations, for nonprofit organizations that act like a governance organization. It, it's really um, important if U.S. soccer, which is mired in a litany of lawsuits right now that's costing the the, the federation tremendous sums of money and legal fees, are you going to repair that image and repair that trust with the public, which it has lost, which has led to these lawsuits? Transparency is a very important first step to repairing the image of U.S. soccer and ensuring that U.S. soccer going forward is acting in an ethical and appropriate manner. What do you know uh, in terms of transparency um, and governance with U.S. soccer? What do you know of the um, governance issues surrounding elections? And comes down to there's some there's some big issues with that as well. Who gets to vote and how much share of the vote do they have? That's the the biggest question that I have. And so, if you look at the mission of the organization, which is um, to promote and govern soccer in the United States in order to make it the preeminent sport recognized for excellence and participation, spectator appeal, international competitions, and gender equality. That's their mission. When you look at the voting population, well, let's go to that last term, gender equality. You don't see that anywhere within the voting rights of the organization, specifically if you're looking at the professional council and the split up, you know, major league soccer. I don't have the shares in front of me, but they have by far and away the largest share of that. Uh, the pro council looks where the women have a very small share of that council. So um, that is a huge issue. Um, you talk about, uh, and you have the Hope Solo lawsuit, which is is specifically looking at that in regards to federal law. And if U.S. soccer is following uh, federal law, I think that Hope Solo has already had some success in court. And it ultimately might change the way that breakdown is done within U.S. soccer. I hope that, that she's successful in that endeavor because there are inequalities and there are questions about who has the control and power in U.S. soccer. And is it appropriate, especially considering some of these other things about who they choose to do business with? Um, if Soccer United Marketing and Major League Soccer have some of the most control and influence over the voting population, is it appropriate for them to also get the the biggest contracts within U.S. soccer. I think that that's a, it's a huge question, and 
another area where I think that there should probably be a divorce, at least on one side or the other, um, they shouldn't be able to both get huge contracts from U.S. soccer, but then have huge influence over who is going to be the leadership of U.S. soccer. It probably should be one or the other, um, and uh, that needs to change. I, I agree completely, and and that to me is one area where I, I think uh, a lot of people don't realize just how uh, much power and influence Don Garber and Major League Soccer have over the U.S. Soccer Federation uh, through the voting, through the, the board seat, um, through the contracts. There is a, a stranglehold on the U.S. Soccer Federation, and that stranglehold um, has been allowed, quite honestly, by by the leadership of U.S. Uh, of U.S. Soccer. Um, you know, it, it didn't start with Sunil Gulati, uh, but he was definitely a big player in that in the beginning, and and uh, you know his presidency uh, much of that time was was actually on the payroll of of bob Kraft, uh one of the primary you know major league soccer uh, owners and operators um and, and so i think a lot of people don't you know put two and two together or haven't put two and two together and realized just how much um, that has an effect on things like the the broadcast contracts, um, decisions that are made by U.S. Soccer, how leaders are elected uh, within U.S. Soccer, um, and we ran into this quite quite honestly with the 2018 presidential election running Eric Winalda's uh, campaign. Uh, you know, going into it, we all thought, man, we we have a really good chance at this. And the closer we got to the election, the more we realized that this thing was jerry rigged. Um, for uh, you know the the status quo to always come out on top, and when you have an athlete council that is um, you know in cahoots with with Don Garber and Soccer United Marketing, it makes it very difficult to uh, to overturn um, or change the leadership at the top uh, when when you have that kind of uh, almost a, a Soviet style voting block um, that are just you know basically a, a firewall against change. Uh, within the federation which you know is just part and parcel of kind of the way things have been done for far too long um one of the recent announcements that came out in the last few months and i was at the 2019 u.s soccer agm in phoenix uh when they had a um, breakout session on this and i and i attended the breakout session uh to to look at uh a U.S. Open Cup TV deal. Um, what have you learned about the the TV deal that U.S. Soccer announced uh, concerning the U.S. Open Cup? Sure. And so this is um, something that was announced earlier this year to the public. Um, it is a deal that apparently goes through 2022 in regards to the Open Cup with ESPN, and most of the matches will be broadcasted on ESPN+. Plus. Um, so I had a conversation about that. I wanted to know um, with U.S. Soccer about how did that came about, what were the details about it, because um, in, in the press release, I saw that it was a, a, a deal that was brokered by Soccer United Marketing, and obviously that invites a lot of questions. And so um, initially, in the phone interview I had with U.S. Soccer, they said it was a part of the original broadcast deal that went from 2014 to 2022. Um, in follow-up email, uh, U.S. Soccer said that it is, in fact, not a part of that original TV deal. Um, so I asked some additional follow-up questions about that, um, and I, I wanted to know, for example, um, uh, when was the deal agreed upon? Uh, U.S. Soccer did not respond to a question about when the deal was agreed upon. They did not respond to a question about when Soccer United Marketing acquired the rights to the tournament. U.S. Soccer did not respond to a question if other vendors were interested in the U.S. Open Cup television contract or if the television contract was openly bid. And they did not um, uh, respond to a question about whether the board was consulted about the approval 
of the contract. Um, you know, back in the game, Carlos Cordero um, said that the unique ownership of some creates conflicts that needed to be addressed. And he pledged that the board and U.S. soccer would act in a more open and transparent manner when it came to things such as new television deals, which is is one of the biggest questions that there is in U.S. soccer. And so right now, there is tremendous amount of uncertainty for me, and I think that the public should be tremendously uncertain about the future as well, as where is the leadership of U.S. soccer going to be on this? Has this this contract been awarded in an inappropriate manner? Is it a market deal? Um, who is receiving the benefits from it? So if some negotiated a deal with ESPN, is ESPN paying some? Is ESPN paying U.S. soccer? Are there new additional revenues that are coming into the tournament that might be able to do things such as raise the uh, the award money or raise the money that's given out to uh, the various amateur teams from all across the country to travel and stay in hotels and participate in the tournament and make it a richer tournament. Um, I also ask questions about if there are plans in the future to have uh, a U.S. Open Cup for women. Um, they decline to answer all of these questions and it really makes me worried, especially going into 2022, if if U.S. soccer is going to have a divorce from Soccer United Marketing or at least a competitive um, openly bid contract in the future that um, you know, anyone can try to win that contract. I am I'm beginning to believe that Carlos Cordero, at least from the actions of U.S. soccer and not answering these basic questions um he is starting to not deliver on the promises that he made during his president candidacy um we need more openness we need more transparency we need to in the most important contracts and the most important relationship that has the most potential for the conflict of interest within u.s soccer needs to be hyper transparent and from what I'm seeing, we're getting the exact opposite and more of the same when it comes to the relationship between U.S. soccer and Soccer United Marketing. And, and just for the audience, um, I, I just want to say that Soccer United Marketing, Don Garber is the, the CEO of Soccer United Marketing. It is a second company outside of Major League Soccer uh, that the owner-operators own. So they own, when you buy into Major League Soccer, you're buying into two companies, um, and you're getting shares in both. And so when when we're talking about some, and, and, and that's just the, you know, the abbreviation for Soccer United Marketing, when we're talking about some, what we're actually talking about is a company owned by the MLS owner operators that have a contract with the federation. So regardless uh, of whether you are, you know, a team in the NPSL, UPSL, uh, USL, maybe you're just a local, you know, youth club or whatever, you don't have access uh, to that kind of influence. That influence has basically been, uh, you know, given exclusive or exclusivity to Major League Soccer. So when we really talk about some, we're actually talking about Major League Soccer, that that, that MLS is, in right. fact, the one getting the TV deals, making money off the TV deals. They make money off the U.S. women's national team. They make money off the U.S. men's national team. They make money off of the Mexican national teams uh, Major League Soccer is the one making that money through their second company called Some Soccer United Marketing and um, and so that's why it's it's such a problem that you have not only that contract but uh, as you have have talked about uh, you have the CEO of Soccer United Marketing and the commissioner of Major League Soccer on your board of directors having influence over decisions and and we all know this regardless of, of you know what's on paper about not being in the room when a decision is made uh when you are when you are in a position uh like being a board member of u.s soccer 
and I've been to enough uh, events where I've seen U.S. U.S. soccer uh, leadership. Don Garber is is right in the thick of it. He is not just a peripheral, um, you know, board member. He is he is you know uh, fully involved. So so to to think that okay, well, he walked out of the room when they were negotiating a contract and had no influence on what was going on in the room before and after uh, is is ridiculous, and and no one should um, you know. Uh, take that lightly i mean his influence and in, in soccer united marketing's influence is that um that intertwined and uh in and from my view and i think from what i'm hearing from your view is is that detrimental on uh u.s soccer and american soccer at large um when when we look at this country one of the things i often talk about is i think we should strive to be the greatest soccer country on earth uh that our mission statement isn't actually big enough that we should try to dream big and work even harder uh to build the greatest soccer country on earth i think we have all the resources i think we have all the potential in the world to become that uh soccer country uh, um, that is that is at the top of the heap on the men's, the women's side, all of our programming, to be honest. Um, when you look at the landscape of American soccer and you look at this country at large, um, w- what do you see as the potential of, of soccer in this country if it was fully unleashed? Well, I think that that's the, the billion dollar question right there. And the, the, the issue is, are we an open? country to unlimited investment in soccer or are we in a closed country where investment in soccer is managed regulated monopolized by a small few number of people and i think we're much more towards that monopolistic version or vision of soccer in america and when you have essentially a monopoly at the top of the heap it means that you have lower amounts of opportunity. And I'll just give an example of, and this is, this is by far not just a soccer thing in America. This is a sports in America thing. Our sporting model in the United States of America is very closed model, top heavy, major metropolitan markets only. And the rest of the country is ignored where the rest of the world has, which is in many ways, much less freedom oriented than the United States is culturally, um, they have a much more open free market type of, if you have, um, uh, sporting accomplishments and sporting merit, you can rise up the pyramid and eventually get all the way up to the top. It doesn't matter if you didn't have a billion dollar, uh, net worth owner by your team, you can get to the next level through sporting merit and how well you perform on the field. So I think that this is the biggest sports question of this century is how are we going to move from the major metropolitan dominated uh, model in the United States? I'll just give a, a crazy statistic is two statistics. There are 23 states in the United States that do not have a top tier professional sports team. And that's NFL, MLB, NBA, NHL, and MLS. 135 out of 136 teams are concentrated in those top 50 markets in the United States. So that means that there is a huge swath of America that's being underserved when it comes to professional sports. There's 160 million people outside of those big 50 markets um, and the one it, it's just a tremendous opportunity and, and if if soccer wants to become the preeminent sport in the United States of America I think that really it just needs to adapt the practices that are adopted in almost everywhere else in the world and having an open system where you can have small communities uh, work their way up the pyramid and and eventually play on the biggest stages in the world. Um, that's something that we don't have, and that connection is something that is is incredibly 
um, uh, valuable that is not being seen at the professional level. And so some people I've, I've raised this open model idea to folks and they're like, well, it's understandable. You want to be in the biggest markets because you have the most amount of consumers and those small teams would from smaller states and, and smaller places would never be able to compete on the biggest stage. But if you actually look at college sports, some of the best teams come from states that have no top tier professional sports teams. You look at the, the NCAA football championship, the BCS championship this year, you had Alabama versus Clemson, which had dominated the last decade in college football. They come from two states that have zero professional sports teams, Alabama and South Carolina, Virginia, which is kind of an anomaly because it is, it's, it's sort of a big state, but it doesn't have any big professional sports teams. Um, they won the basketball championship last year. And so here we have people saying that professional sports will never succeed in these small markets all across America that have been completely underserved monopolistic sports model are just bursting at the seams, waiting to explode into something enormous, more enormous than we've ever seen in the United States of America before. And we see the evidence at the college level by smaller markets and smaller states able to get to the top of the heap because they have more of an open system, not a perfect system, but it's more of an open system where people from all across the country can compete and make it up to the top level. It's something that U.S. soccer should be looking into. They are sanctioning closed leagues. Why aren't they, they trying to sanction and establish open leagues? Um, that should be the goal of U.S. soccer is serve the entire country, not just specifically the top 50 markets in the United States of America. Their professional standards for leagues is, is geared towards the, the, this model which is competing with these other established sports leagues in the United States on their terms, instead of inventing a new, well, not really inventing, but inventing a new way for the United States of America's purposes and trying to get to all these underserved areas all across the country and giving them the, the unified vision that anyone anywhere has unlimited opportunity and can make it to the top that's what U.S. soccer should be going after. When you note that you have 135 of 136 professional teams in America are in the top 50 markets, uh, what is the one team that is not in a top 50 market? It's the Green Bay Packers of the NFL. And I think that they've, since they're a big rival of the Chicago Bears, I, I know a little bit about the Green Bay Packers. Um, they've been around. Basically, the only reason why they're around is because they're, they're, they're over 90 years old. And so they come from a bygone era of the NFL, which was more regional in the Midwest. But they've won championships into the 2000s. Um, they have shown on this big stage that they can compete with the best teams from across America. They can win championships. They're in a smaller market. Um, I think that they have something like 320,000 people. When we talk about the big 50 markets in the United States, they're all over a million. So there's lots of these significantly large metropolitan areas between 1 million and 100,000 that I think would be totally viable. You know, if you look at the Green Bay Packers and their economic success, they're also interesting because they're fan owned. It's one of the only professional sports teams in the United States that's fan owned. Um, they show a different way and it gives me hope that a different way could be successful all across America, despite what the experts are telling us that professional sports could only happen in big cities. But let me ask you this question. It, sports is essentially entertainment. Are there only movie theaters in, in metropolitan areas with over a million people? Do artists, musicians only play in those big cities or do they play in little cities too? Are there movie theaters in other cities too? Does McDonald's have stores in places other than big cities? There's this 
huge market opportunity for soccer, and it's naturally ingrained in the soccer culture already internationally, a huge opportunity. I think it's the pathway to go from being the, the fifth biggest sport in America to being the top sport in America by not ignoring the places that are being ignored by the big five professional leagues. When when we talk about you know the the size of cities, uh, one of the things that that has gone on in the Premier League for the last few years, and that will change this year as uh, Aston Villa um, it, it got promoted back to the Premier League um, in the promotion playoff. Uh, but for the last few years, uh, the second largest city in England have not had a team in the Premier League. Uh, both Birmingham City and Aston Villa were playing in the championship. Uh, they, they have now you know, gotten promoted and, uh, and, and are you know, going to be back um, in, in the uh, Premier League starting uh, in August. But when you look at these leagues in Europe, uh, and, and not just um, in, in England, but all over uh, Europe, uh, I think about Burnmouth in the Premier League. I think about Ibar in Spain. You know, Ibar in in, in Real are both from cities of less than a hundred thousand people, uh, and and play mm-hmm. you know in La Liga, the top league in Spain. Uh, yet when we look at you know America, we go well. Look, if you don't have uh, over a million people, we're not really in, interested in even having a conversation with you about a team. Um, I, I just see a massive disconnect between what what is perceived to be necessary to be professional or or first division professional versus real world examples of what is taking place. I mean, Apple, one of the greatest companies in the world, was founded in a garage, um, and mm-hmm. you know, and yet we we think that the only way to to bake a soccer team and make it successful is to throw it in the oven of a million dollar city. Um, not a million dollar, mm. but a million people city, rather than, you know, uh, as you brought up, and, and I have, you know, a, a deep knowledge of, you know, Alabama. I mean, the, the stadium holds over 100,000 people um, and, mm-hmm. it's, and it sells out. It's packed for game days. Um, you know, Major League Soccer isn't enjoying that that kind of attendance uh, at any location. Uh, and even their largest uh, attendance at Atlanta United pales in comparison to by by 25, 30 percent uh, what what Alabama will get for a game day uh, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, which is nowhere near uh, that list of, of million people cities. Um, and, yeah. and, and the same goes across this country uh, with, with other places. Uh, I think you bring up a really valid point there in terms of what what should matter. And, and when we look at the U.S. soccer professional league standards, they are the rules that govern first, second, third division. And you have to keep in mind that those right. rules are another piece of the transparency and governance conversation we've been having today uh, that basically give Major League Soccer the ability to... to run alone in the first division and they get to kind of have influence over how those rules are written and and how it basically keeps their competition at bay and the rules in that first division are all predicated on ownership net worth population uh, of a city of a metro market city size time zones etc none of that has anything to do with putting a quality product on the field of knowing the business you're in the soccer business of, of developing players of understanding and, and operating with excellence as an organization. None of that has any bearing on, on an organization's ability to, to run a first rate club. It's all predicated on what I call arbitrary standards uh, of net worth and, 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 
in city location and city size rather than the quality of the club. Um, and, um, and, and, and that's why we miss out on some of these incredible stories like Burnmouth and, and Ibar and Villarreal and others who, who, you know, have written their own history and, and have done incredible things on the field without a merit-based system they are locked out. If they were in America, they, they, they would never get a whiff. If you're, if you're mm-hmm. a city of, of 30,000 people, you're never getting a whiff of, of making it to the top. But I, it, the, the town that I grew up in is, is roughly the size of Ibar playing in the first division in Spain. And to just put this in perspective, in the American perspective, the town that I grew up, uh, in the last few years has had from the same same high school six players in the NFL. Six wow. players from one high school, one town, the size of Ibar that's playing in the top division in Spain. And, and so this idea that we can't find and develop talent and we can't build excellent clubs – uh, unless we're in a market of over a million, unless we have an owner that that's a you know a billionaire, and it's only the ownership structure is constructed you know in, in one way that U.S. soccer likes or a certain time zone, etc. It to me is is just indisputable that those rules have very little to do with with the product on the field and and the game itself and has all to do with with protecting assets and and um and control of the federation and uh access to the top levels of of american soccer um when when you look at uh the the landscape of american soccer and you look at at where we are as as a country um I want to ask you this one one final question. If you were in charge of American soccer for a day, what w- you ha- you have complete power? What would you do with your one day in charge? Oh my goodness, that's a great question. Um, and thank you for having me on the show, Daniel. I really appreciate it. Um, I would institute an open system. Um, and I think that the appropriate organization, it should have been done a long time ago by U.S. soccer. And I would allow anyone in the country to be able to invest and aspire to the top of U.S. soccer, top of the nation. Um, I think that we can have thousands of clubs. Uh, and it's not just that we would have more opportunity in some of those smaller metropolitan areas, but really you would have more opportunities in the big markets as well. If you look at a place like London and they have, they have teams all up and down the pyramid and they have, you know, one of the teams that I've been following, this is more in Manchester, but Salford city is that they've, they've risen up like four or five tiers in just the last half a decade. Um, incredibly like in London, you have Millwall, Crystal Palace, oriented uh tottenham hotspur some of the bigger teams that you're familiar with chelsea fulham millwall um the opportunities are going to be orders of magnitude larger if we had an open system within the united states instead of subsidizing a closed system we should be establishing and growing an open system where anybody from any community across the country can get together a group of their friends and start building something greater and aspire to that top level. That would be uh, a transformational change, not just in U.S. soccer. I think that we would become the greatest soccer nation in the world if we just had an open system, an organized open system that allowed everyone to aspire to reach the top and be connected um, through a pyramid that made sense instead of the system that we currently have where uh, everything's based on artificial scarcity. We're going to restrict who can make it to the top level. If you don't have $150 million to pay us, another $200, $300 million to build a stadium, et cetera, we don't want anything to do with you. 
Um, you see this on level after level in U.S. soccer, whether it be coaching licenses. The, it, there's artificial scarcity created by U.S. soccer to prevent people from getting licenses to be a coach. Um, it should be the other way around. We should be sharing educational tools with as many people as possible and allowing every single state association to offer coaching licenses. But instead, we have this very restrictive model that restricts the amount of teams that can aspire or communities that can aspire to the very top, restricts the number of coaches that can aspire to the very top. You know, all the way up and down the line, we have a model built on closeness and monopolies. And if we had an open system, I think it would transform not just soccer, but all of the sports. I think all the other sports after a, a decade or two would, would change their models as well. But soccer has an opportunity here. Um, we have the culture already within soccer fans across the nation. If we adopted an open model, um, that would be the one thing. I would want to do a hundred things, but the one thing that I think that would have the most impact was to have an open system in the United States of America. Well, I agree with you completely, and uh, I hope and work every day to see that happen. And I know that you you want to see that happen, and um, you know we can uh, we can only hope and continue to work towards those efforts. Uh, Brian, thanks for coming on the show. We really do appreciate you spending some time with us uh, on this Fourth of July. Um, I, I don't think we could have talked about a better topic today than freedom for every American club to to have the opportunity to rise on merit. Uh, there's no better theme than that uh, of today. So thank you for spending some time with us. We really do appreciate it. Thank you, Daniel. And I hope that Independence Day for U.S. soccer comes sometime soon. You and me both. You and me both. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, today's sponsor uh, for this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. Um, they, provi- they provide clean drinking water to people all over the world. And you can be a part of that story by going to charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thank Brian for coming on the show today, this July 4th Independence Day. Enjoy it, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Um, Sunday's going to be a big day, and we will cover that tomorrow, get in depth into to both of those finals for the U.S. women's and men's national teams. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the day. We'll see everyone again tomorrow. <laughs>